0: Welcome to the Getting Real with Hillary Show, where ordinary heroes tell extraordinary stories during unique and never-been-heard-before conversations with your host, Hillary Arno Burns. Hillary's unique listening and way of asking questions results in conversations that aren't usually talked about, so you can create the life that you really want but are afraid you can't really have. We are demonstrating the greatness in the human spirit and creating a world where we all reclaim our birthright of joy, happiness, purpose, and passion. Now, here's your host, Hilary Arno Burns. Welcome to the Getting Real with Hillary show. And today we have a very special guest, really special. I know I say that every week, but this one's really special. Okay. So before we go there, I'm going to let you know about my books in case you haven't heard of them. Real Talk is a book about speaking up. And if you're a people pleaser like me, this book can literally change your life. Um, This one is uh, tools and techniques for Uh, freedom for getting free from where you might be stuck or maybe if you're upset sometimes and then you get upset because you're upset this one will literally free you from that and uh, you can start having way more fun in your life and stop thinking there's something wrong with you and then this one is my old favorite the second piece of french toast my memoir if you happen to be in a marriage where you might have said to yourself i wonder what happened to me this book is for you. That's what happened to me, and this is my story about how I refound myself and it's it's a great summer read. It's juicy. It's got some it was courageous of me to do it. And here we go. I keep losing my sh- keep losing my shirt for some reason. You know what? Now that I've shown my books, I'm going to take off my green screen. Okay, so there we go. There's my shirt. I am not naked. and now I can I can uh, introduce my guest. Dan Holmes. So Dan is a horticulturist and landscape designer in Newtown, Connecticut. He's a business owner of Holmes Fine Gardens in Newtown. Uh, He's the owner and landscape designer. He's got a very, very unique twist on landscape and design. And I can't wait for him to tell your story. Um, The way that I met Dan is very interesting. I was at a book show in Newtown or a book talk And I was right next to his daughter. She had a booth right next to my little table, and my daughter and her uh, hit it right off. Dan came over. He was so generous to buy my books, and I asked him if he had a story. And he's like, Yes, as a matter of fact, I do. So here he is, ready to tell his story. Welcome, Dan Holmes.
1: Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me here. I appreciate it very much. And uh, I think I raised my hand and asked you a question uh during your book talk and my question was how long have you been doing these podcasts and you said why do you want to do you want to start one and I had never thought of that before so here we are this is why oh. this is the this is the next is How your, we got here
0: wow next and stage. so you might start your own well no this is this is this oh, is good okay. enough for me yeah, okay you wanted funny. to be a guest okay good <laughs> absolutely <laughs> yeah so yeah. So, so when when I was talking to Dan, I, um, you know, I, I didn't know he said he had a story. I didn't really know what it was. But then when we were talking, uh, you know, in the last week, I was like, oh my God, this has to be told what your passion and purpose is. And um, so, anyway, so Dan, do you want to start about when you were a young kid or you want me to ask you the questions? How do you want to do it?
1: Uh, sure, a little of both. Um, you know, okay. born based in Connecticut. Um, started in Norwalk and early age fourth grade moved up to Newtown and was here for a few years my dad was in California and my mom was here so I just kind of went back and forth uh, to the east and the west coast and decided to stay out in California for the rest of my high school years and stayed, in, stayed there for college my mom was hoping I'd go to UConn to study horticulture I knew I wanted to study horticulture um, and you know even as a kid I was pushing the lawnmower around doing that kind of work, starting out in the garden, helping my mom in the garden and um, decided to pursue it full time, uh, you know, as a a student and but always have been around plants as a kid. Uh, In the eighth, ninth grade, there was a a pretty well known rock garden up the hill from my house in Newtown, uh, Jim, uh, Jim York. Um, had a beautiful garden. So I would spend days after school tending to these rock garden plants and these very unusual plants. It just opened a whole new world uh, to me, both in terms of exposure and the types of plants and how to maintain them. So I kind of right away knew that it was something that I wanted to get involved in. He had me doing all kinds of interesting things, building walls out of newspaper that would decompose in 20 years and you know so really just kind of avant-garde things he would have uh, trees that he'd flip upside down after they were cut and he'd make like little people out of them these little statues in the garden so he was definitely like avant-garde back in the day here in newtown so a little eccentric so that was kind of my one of my first early forays into gardening
0: how did you happen to, were you working for him? Did he pay you or you were just so fascinating?
1: fascinating? Yeah, there was a sign at the local Dodging Tom Market, little little index card. And so I went down between, I was babysitting, doing whatever I could to make money back in the day. And uh, that became something I did regularly after school. I would go up there and on the weekends and and work for him. And, uh, and
0: he must have loved you, right? Because you were so interested. Did he just love you? He, I mean- he did. He had a lot
1: of, you know, he had a lot of big property, so he needed a lot of help there yeah. for sure. A lot of need, um, and uh, that was a, you know, certainly ex- a good exposure, I'd say. Right now, unfortunately, the garden I've gone by it, and there's still some beautiful plants, but it's it's grown in quite a bit. A new uh, owner, he's since passed, um, but after that, I, I like I said, I studied horticulture in California, went out there, so I always had that West Coast kind of exposure as well and uh I went to school in Cal Cal Poly San Luis Obispo what a beautiful area that is in the central coast of California and after graduating college I I I really missed the my homeland here I feel Connecticut Mm -hmm. you know the amount of rain and the greenery and just just I used to go for rides with my mother up to the white flower farm so I kind of missed that it was just very arid out in California I love the landscape out there Um, I still get out there quite a bit, still have family there. So after working in various, for different nurseries or a landscape architect and different contractors, uh, I decided about 20 years ago to go out on my own and, uh, haven't looked back. So I, am still at it and be, I guess what, what struck me is the, even now the amount of um, work it requires to to take care of a property. And it led me to um, really thinking about how do we do that in a way that makes sense? And, you know, the, the mountains and the prairies and the streams around us, they don't really need much. They don't require much. So I've always kind of in the back of my mind, thought about how do we mimic that a little bit? How do we take a uh, a landscape and make it be less high maintenance, you know, a high amount of labor to, to require yeah. that it's required? I think that's important for a lot of reasons. So I kind of, regardless of the job that I was in, different people I was working for, I always kind of gravitated towards ways to make uh, the landscape both ex- aesthetic and yet maybe in highly functional but yet also be efficient you know and how it is how the plants are used so a lot of my work now is is i've refined it over the years and we're always learning things always uh, there's so much to know in that space of you know native plants and ecological landscaping which is i consider the type of work that we do ecological landscaping and, uh, and so, yeah.
0: Are those when you use, because when we were talking, you talked a lot about the native plants and what's natural there. Is that what makes it lower maintenance is when you use the natural plants of the area, would you say? Or what makes it less maintenance?
1: I would say, I would say definitely the choice of plants and the location of plants and how they're planted, for sure. Uh, much of the landscape that when you drive around you see you know pretty bushes and whatnot they all have a part in our landscape but unfortunately so often they're planted in such a way that they require a lot of pruning so that people are pruning things oftentimes whereas if you were to space things properly or put the right plant in that place you probably would need very little pruning if if at all Uh, and i i love a well-clipped japanese garden i mean i appreciate all types of gardening and all types of gardens but i think because of the amount of time people have and the amount of resources that they want to put into their their properties there's a way to do it that is very sensitive to both the environment and to their their budget we try to always look at that um so yes i think native plants by and large require fewer inputs they don't require any if all fertilizers, uh, pesticides, oftentimes they're more disease resistant, they're more cold hardy, they're specific to this area, that's on one level. The second benefit is that they typically live longer, they typically require, um, so there's a financial aspect too, you, you have fewer inputs, less, less to maintain. Um, moreover, how do you... Uh, sorry, go ahead.
0: Sorry, no. How do you know? I mean, I know you. Pro- you study it, but how do you know what's like? If I was walking around here or by the water, do I what I know? What's a native plant versus a non-native plant, or that's something that you know because you studied it?
1: There, I'm learning stuff every day for sure, <laughs> without a doubt.
0: That's not something that you can go. That's native. That's not. That's not right.
1: Around here, I have a pretty good handle on that—the uh, natives yeah. versus non. The um, the reason why it's difficult to to see the difference and to to recognize the difference uh, from an outsider standpoint is that the non-natives can be so ubiquitous and so um, overwhelming and aggressive and invasive that they they overwhelm an entire area. It's hard to imagine that they're not native to this area. There's um, all kinds of examples. Like,
0: what? like what's an example? Uh,
1: the Russian olive, which was introduced by the highway department uh, for, to slope stabilization. It's a beautiful f- fragrant, but it, it reseeds and repopulates itself. I guess I should back up a little bit. So there's a lot of talk of sort of invasive plants and why they're a problem. Uh, the invasive plants, there's lots of plants that are introduced. They're typically, they're not from this area. They were either brought over by accident or brought over and introduced to the area and kind of escaped into the wild. And a native, an, an invasive plant is a plant that is able to reproduce itself on its own and kind of spread either via wind or birds, you know, pooping out their seed and they, they really take over an area wow. because of that. Oh, you,
0: know, you know what I'm thinking of? is Pachysandra. Is that a native or a non-native? Because that, that took over my parents' backyard.
1: Yeah, that particular, the, the evergreen one is not native, but it's also okay. not considered invasive because it does not okay. necessarily move itself from that location to your neighbor's property and then a mile okay. across the town or two miles down the road. It pretty much stays local. Uh, so but what's another
0: like, invasive?
1: Yeah, go ahead. Sure, A Japanese barberry which you see in the woods it has a little thorn uh, quite spiny and that particular plant uh, for a lot of reasons in, invasives can be problematic that is an invasive because it most invasive plants are problematic because they they occupy an area and they disallow they disallow the native plants to thrive, therefore forcing our native, insects and birds to seek elsewhere there's no it's not a there used to be a food source there for them now there's no food source and so not having that food source and we wonder why there's a i don't know what the percentage is now at 80 percent decline in bird population and insect population bees tremendous loss of habitat really is reflective of that so every i the the mm. Anything we can do, I feel, to disallow non-native plants, even if they're not aggressive and invasive, to disallow them and remove them, eradicate them however we can, and to supplant them with native choices is always uh, a great option. It's something that we, we strive to do. And the reason why I was starting to say is that these these yeah. non-native plants, they're everywhere. You drive on the highway, you drive down the road, all the vines in the, in the trees typically, most yeah. of those most of those that they they you know going out your driveway you're trying to get around the corner you can't see because there's a bunch of vines in there most of those plants are non-native uh, invasive plants they're they're everywhere when you start looking you start realizing uh how
0: how plenty they are so wow so so what would i mean what can we do to bring back the natural
1: well it, there's a lot of opportunity. I think there's a lot of people recognizing this. A lot of municipalities recognize this. Uh, the s- states recognize this. Um, garden clubs are recognized this. Conservation groups recognize this. school groups. So there's all kinds of ways people can get involved either on a local level or on your own backyard to eradicate them. Some, some plants are terribly aggressive and very difficult. Um, whether or not i'm not going to get into the herbicide discussion although whether there's a place for it or not go um, ahead
0: get into just, it yeah well <laughs> yeah this where this is about saying what people aren't talking about so if we well, can't say it here where can we talk about it right
1: yeah yeah i think the the herbicides can certainly be effective and kill off non-native plants and all plants clearly uh the roundups of the world and all these you know monsantos they get a quite a bad rap and they can certainly change the soil biology uh you know these chemicals can certainly do a lot of harm they're highly effective in doing what they do they're very targeted but they can also do a lot of damage there's all kinds of water pollution there's all kinds of human pollution that, you know, we ingest these, it's in our food, it's in everywhere. There's a lot of chemicals that are in our water, in our soil, in our fingernails, in our hair uh, that we absorb. So there's a lot of it. You know, I think the organic food movement, and the you know, Rodale Institute with their, you know, push for organics is a great step in the right direction. We need a whole lot more of that. So, uh, getting back to the soil, for, soil, yeah, the the native plants as far as gardening goes and aesthetics yeah. and aesthetics landscape for most homeowners. There are definitely ways to get rid of invasive plants without the use of chemicals. We strive as a company to always do that.
0: And how do you do it? We
1: either usually many different. Uh, avenues. We'll either mechanically remove with a piece of machinery and with ex- a small excavator, sometimes by hand. Sometimes we will cover an area with either a sheet plastic, like a large sheet plastic, especially in the summertime, if we want to create a meadow and the area was at one time filled with lots of invasive plants and all kinds of challenging plants that are too aggressive. If we allow those aggressive plants to remain, and we're trying to plant, let's say a meadow into a beautiful backyard, into a sunny area, where for years these weeds have grown, these weeds and other aggressive plants, if we don't eradicate not only what's currently growing, the green material, but the soil has in it, in the soil has a seed bank of seeds that subsist for years so'll so they'll, they'll, and so you have to kind of allow the soil to grow out, kill it off, either solarize it with a cover and let it cook for up to six months, maybe longer it could be a whole year. Wow. Uh, sometimes mechanical removal is is sufficient, but that mechanical removal does disrupt the soil and it sometimes allows weed seeds to pop back out. You disrupt the soil. And it actually not only messes up with the messes the soil structure, it can also affect the soil in such a way that you now have a release of all these all these seeds that have been buried dormant for years, and now they kind of spring to life. So we we use a, a series of approaches. We'll weed whack down, and we'll do that repeatedly to exhaust the carbohydrates of the plant, so it exhausts the resources, and then we can go in and plant a meadow. We can plant a desirable area. We also sometimes will do something called sheet mulching which is a process wherein we lay either newspaper down or some other decomposable material and then pile mulch on four to six plus inches of mulch and that heat and that lack of light will also disallow plant material growth so we'll do that at times as well in areas and then we can go ahead and plant in between we can plant our plugs, and we can plant our little little plants, and create a garden that way. So mulches help a whole lot for sure. Uh, so you can do a lot without herbicides. Some people, some people are still going to use chemicals. Uh, you know, it's they're out there. If they weren't here, I think we'd figure out a way to do without for sure. There are natural chemicals. There are uh, vinegar sprays. Uh, you can mix vinegar and salt and soapy water for your driveway weeds, that works really well. Um, on a hot day, just for sure, you want to let it sit. Doesn't always kill aggressive roots. You might want to do a second or third application. So that's kind of our approach. Does,
0: yeah, does, does the, um, the sheet mulching and all that kill the seed bank? So does that does that work for that?
1: If you keep it covered with mulch and it's dark and it doesn't receive light again, it could work. It can it can yeah. smother the seed and over time it just kind of decomposes because some of these seeds have a real hard shell and they'll they'll persist for five plus years. And wow. Certain plants. yeah. So there's certain plants that are really aggressive. Japanese knotweed is very challenging. So we could there's lots of different yeah, plants. i there. so There's
0: quite a few. There's quite. <laughs> I'm a learning variety. everything today. Yeah.
1: There's quite a few that are aggressive, and they're everywhere. So, so, you know, the the whole purpose of doing that is to create biodiversity on our on our properties, on all our properties. And there is currently a, a, a quite a big push nationally, and I've been, it might even be an international movement at this point. There was a book written by Doug Ptolemy. I have the book here. I can show you. It's um nature's best hope. Wow. Doug uh, Doug Ptolemy is uh, an entomologist at the University of Delaware. And an entomologist being a man who studies bugs and loves bugs, he makes a great argument in his book, the importance of of bugs and insects and pollinators, and obviously the birds that rely on those bugs for food source. And Mm -hmm. ultimately we rely on these bugs for our food source. Uh, without them, we don't have, you know, nearly 40% of all of our fruits and vegetables. They're direct pollinators. So, so in this book, he explains the need for habitat creation for our pollinators, our insects. And he makes a very strong argument that on most of our properties, if you drive around land, look at the landscapes, most of the plants that are planted on people's properties don't provide any ecological benefit to our native animals and insects because they're a not from here or they don't provide a nectar source or a food source so the need for native plants is critical and in all forms and any landscape can find a place for native plants And they can be used in such a way that they don't have to be considered messy. They can be used in a stylistic way that is, uh, you know, highly functional and beautiful and yet feels good to be planting them because they, they are really, your, your landscape comes to life in an amazing way when you start embodying your landscape starts, you know, being populated with these types of plants. So, so that, that, In his book, again, getting back to it, he he makes a strong case for not only removing invasives on your property, but the fact is that we have a large percentage of our land in this country is in private hands. It's not just national parks. It's not just federally owned or state owned. All the little houses of America have collectively... As much acreage as acreage as our national parks, so it's a real, He feels that it's a real opportunity to to create this biodiversity. And so, in doing so, he's urging uh, residents all over the country to use their home and create, in essence, their own homegrown national park. And this homegrown, this idea of a homegrown national park is utilizing your own property to create that oasis for the birds and the bees and the beneficials by simply planting native plants. And so I, when I go to, I go to a lot of properties and, and this made a lot of sense. This only happened in the last two years or so. And there's a movement in various towns throughout the country, this this homegrown national park movement, and they have an interactive website. It's, it's a, you can click on it. You can click on your town. You can, you can sign up to, Create a, a park on your property or a, a biodiverse garden. Say
0: no. When you say only in the past two years, do you mean the homegrown national park movement, or do you mean at yes. native plants? You've been looking at native plants for longer than that, right?
1: Yes. Yes. This homegrown national park movement is a is a fairly okay. new um, development and uh, cool. It's it's yeah so it's it's happening all over all over the country it's it's That's awesome it's quite exciting a lot of people are signing up our in Newtown we we started a, a program here and uh, it's kind of an offshoot from a book club and the book club is an offshoot from the Watershed Association in our town the Putituck Watershed Association and our president Randy has found founded this Homegrown National Park movement and I think it's it's happening and there's also the the pollinator pathway folks and the Protect Our Pollinators there's a lot of yeah. movement simultaneously doing very similar things with very similar aims which is protecting these sensitive areas so and do they
0: all do they all go with the native plants i mean is that the whole that's the whole the native plants will solve a lot of these problems if we have more of those right definitely definitely yeah so how does i know we have to take our break soon but if, if let, let's say we were gonna we wanted to plant some native plants here. Um how would we know what they were? Or would these sites help with that? Like how do you know what your own native plants are in your area? Yeah,
1: I, yeah um I luckily there's 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 a lot of develop you know development in this uh area with uh there's many organizations. There's many landscape contractors. I, I, you know, I'm not certainly. There's so many more people like me, um,
0: okay,
1: who are involved in this. The Ecological Landscape Association in our state and um, Massachusetts. So there's
0: resources.
1: There's resources. The nurseries. Yeah. Most nurseries, yeah. okay. even Home Depot has sections of native plants. You know, echinacea. You know, they have, they carry all kinds of, you know, flowering dogwood. There's a lot of plants that we already use. Okay. in our landscapes there so it's not that foreign to us right Uh, luckily luckily there's more and more being developed and there's more more being I should say propagated and um garden clubs are promoting all this so there's definitely resources all kinds of great books out there for sure
0: that's that's great I mean it's new to me so I I'm I'm thinking that it might be new to other people who aren't in this world in this conversation. So I'm happy to, that we get to spread it (laughs) and educate people. You know, you hear about the bees, but you don't really know, well, what are you going to do about it? You know what I mean? This is something that every homeowner can do to help the cause in their own little backyard. This is really great. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. All right. So we're going to go to our commercial break and then um we can show your well we'll talk a little bit about what you're doing in the meadows which i think is so cool and then we'll show those pictures after okay great so get them ready (laughs) first of all we'll have a break from our sponsor so thank you Has social-emotional learning become just one more thing on your teacher's plates? Do teachers and students both find it boring and ineffective? Then bring Kikori to your school. Kikori transforms classrooms through experiential SEL activities that help students play, reflect, connect, and grow. Even better, students say it's more fun than recess. Schedule a no-obligation conversation at kikoriapp.com slash bringkikori. K-I-K-L-R-I. Do you ever feel like you can't say what you really want to say? Or that you're stuck or in a holding pattern in your relationships, career, personal life, or finances? Are there things you want in life that you've given up on? Are you resigned that this is as good as it's going to get? If you answered yes to any of these questions, then Hillary Burns, host of the Getting Real with Hillary show, has the solution you need. Hillary is a published author of three books and has a program called The Getting Real Process. This process frees you from what is holding you back, allowing you to create a life you love. Don't believe it? It is hard to believe that it could work, isn't it? The proof is that hundreds of Hillary's clients have used The Getting Real Process and are now free to create whatever they want in relationships, career, finances, enjoying life, or just loving themselves more. So go to realtalkwithhillary.com and order Hillary's book, Real Talk, and set up a conversation. Thank you to our sponsor, Kikori app.com. Dan, you met my daughter. That's her. That's her. I know I, I put on my camouflage again so I could show my book. Um. So anyway, so Haley, my daughter works at Kikori. It's a startup and it's also very um, important for our children. They they have it's a social emotional learning app where kids can get connected, get socialized, especially after COVID. So if you have a school or you want to offer it at your school, go to kakoriapp.com and reach out to Haley. And then again, the real talk book that was my commercial and what's different about this is that you actually get to say all the things that you don't normally say you might think it's wrong to say you might be ashamed this book gets you free gets you out of your head and once you get free you literally can create what you want and it's a safe space um if you you know if you're someone who you know just doesn't know what the problem is go to real and schedule a time to talk because it really does work. All right. Now I'm going to get out of my camouflage. <laughs> so we're going to go back to, um, we're going to go back to Dan. Um, thank you, Dan, for being here again. It's so interesting. Um, I mean, for me, other people might know this already, but for me, this is all new and, um, it's fascinating. So I don't know where, I don't even know where we were, but, um, Bringing, mm-hmm. bringing nature home. I know that that's another book you had said. Um, so, what else would you like to talk about? How can people? I know they can they can join these organizations. What what else can people do? What else do you want to tell people? And how do they reach you and stuff like that?
1: Sure. The um, I think the best opportunity for you know professionally. I I think we're finally. 20 years ago, when I first started talking about meadows, you know, I had a a float in the landscape in the Labor Day Parade in Newtown, and we made a float out of a meadow, and we had these dancing butterflies, and it was magical. My buddy Rob made these beautiful die-cut butterflies, and and we created a meadow on the back of a flatbed truck, and I had, at the time, all of our young kids, they're now grown, and waving to everybody. And, and so it, it's a happy thing to see a meadow. And so I've always really yeah. been a chance meadows and there's, there is a um, preponderance of lawn, I think, everywhere. And I look at opportunities for us to develop more spaces for our pollinators and our bees and our bees and our birds and, and beauty, beauty, truthfully, and less maintenance. So Again, so our
0: lawns not conducive to the pollinators and, and the bugs? They peel that off? Or is that a, it's it, not an invasive, but is it a not, not a, native?
1: It's not or? at all. They're not at all native. They're okay. uh, They are areas that are nice to recreate, to play on but they all, it's virtually a wasteland for any of our pollinators. There's there's nothing for them to feed on. They might bounce around, they might check it out, but there's, there's you start looking around at how much lawn, how much time we spend, how much petroleum- yes. to cut these lawns. And I'd rather, I don't know about you, but I'd rather have a Saturday going somewhere else and seeing something exciting than mowing my lawn or pulling where weeds. Did,
0: where did that become a thing like that? You need a house and a lawn, you know, like that, right? People just think that's what you need to do.
1: Yeah, you look at the oldest states in England with those long traverses of lawn and, the, you know, fields. I think it started there. It started back in the European days. And I think when people came to America, you know, these prairies, these big open prairies, which are, are conducive, you know, they're they're prevalent in the Midwest. So maybe it's that, that, that feeling of having a, that lawn space. And we all want to have that little slice of heaven. I'm not sure, but... To me, I, I love I love a, a a nice lawn. I'm I'm not against lawn by any stretch, but I it's a matter of how much we need it and where we need it and what are we using that lawn for if it's just
0: no yeah, kids to play, something to cut. <laughs> yeah, it's a we lot. We couldn't even allow to when we were growing up. We still, my father's passed away, but we would get yelled at. Don't walk on the lawn. So it wasn't even like a useful thing. It was just something he took great care of and you know spent. Yeah. Is maintaining it but for yeah. what yeah interesting so i never I, I get that it. that's so interesting so what would you put instead i know you you like meadows could people instead of a front lawn they could have a meadow i mean yeah not
1: everybody wants to look at you know again i think it comes down to uh, it has to be used in a stylistic way in a way yeah. in an area that makes sense for people um you probably don't want to have your meadow run all the way up to your kids' swing set. You know, you'd want to have an area that's mowed around the swing set, an area that you're, you know, people are worried about ticks back here, especially. Right. And most of the tick population, what I will kind of counter that with is if you were to do a drag test with a white cloth, and they do this in, in fields to check populations of ticks. If you were to do that through an open sunny meadow, you'd find very, very, very few ticks. Very few ticks prefer a moist, cool, damp area. They, they, they love those damp, damp spaces and cool spaces. They don't, they're not going to be in the sunny, sunny locations in a beautiful sunny meadow. You're just not going to find yeah. that. You go into the woods, you go around stone walls. Anywhere where there's mice that can get in, they love to crawl into those spaces. Mice and deer; those are the two uh, most prevalent mammals that 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 ticks uh, you know live on. And there's a real connection between. I was talking about Japanese barberry before. Yeah. Japanese barberry alone, that one plant, has a real health implications. It's, it's a public safety hazard because you have a preponderance of Barberry, which in essence, barberry is able to change the pH. I want to see what it looks like.
0: Would I recognize
1: it? Oh, you would when you when you pinch it. It has very sharp spines, Hmm. uh, little short thorns. Uh, They 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 sell all kinds of ornamental versions of this Japanese barberry still to this day. Oh, you can't see,
0: but it looks. I mean, it doesn't look nasty. It looks pretty.
1: So there's there's. They're, they're used ornamentally. The 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 cultivated varieties of this uh, rosy glow and crimson pygmy. They're they're used in our in our landscapes by some people who still plant them, uh, and nurseries still grow certain certain portions of the certain cultivars of these. Uh, the University of Connecticut wow. years ago realized that this was a big problem. This barberry. Uh, because what what the barberry is doing is it it changes the soil pH to allow to push out invaders, so it actually can make its its soil profile conducive to itself. So then the barberry you'll see you go into a forest and you, where there's one barberry, there's thousands. So it kind of repopulates itself. Wow. The birds take the seeds, they eat the fruit, they poop the seeds everywhere, and then there you go, you get barberry everywhere. And then what happens as far as this the public and health- they don't,
0: well, you can't see, but they don't look, wait, let me just see if I can, I gotta put my camouflage, whoops, wait, that wasn't my green screen, sorry. <laughs> let me see if I can show this so people can see. So no, that's, that's what like- it looks like. It, it doesn't even look like, like it's a nasty thing. It looks pretty, right? So people don't even know that they're planting something
1: bad, right? Well, they, they may not, and it's, it's been used uh, for a long time. I don't remember when. It was a Japanese uh, introduction, and so what's happened is... Here's, that's a,
0: here's a, another one. Yeah, yeah
1: that, that's the cultivated wow. variety, probably called crimson pygmy or something like that. It's a red leaf variety. There's yellow leaf varieties. There's green leaf varieties, and so what happens is the birds will take these, and they'll distribute these seeds. The the That one plant has been cultivated for a long time, maybe 100 years or more, I'm not quite sure. So the University of Connecticut decided to uh, see which particular cultivars have the highest seed count, because those that have the highest seed count are going to be the most aggressive, emo- the most invasive. Mm-hmm. So they, they, they have categorized, I think it's 20 different cultivars that have the highest seed count, and they no longer are producing them. So we've reduced that. However, there's still a lot of these barberry around. And one of the reasons getting back to the public safety, public health concern and regarding ticks is that barberry fill our understory. They disallow invaders. They change the soil pH. On top of that, because uh, mice burrow into the ground, they bury around the plants and they can hide in the barberry wherever there's barberry there's usually a very there's a preponderance of mice and mouse mice ticks live on mice to great degrees and so where you have a lot of barberry you have an increase in mouse population an increase in tick population that is through the roof so when you're eradicating barberry you're helping restore mouse populations once the mice don't have a place to hide the natural predators can find those mice they can do what they need to do with those mice their food source so it's all about balance you know the yeah. the the having too much of this one particular plant that's taking over it creates these imbalances you know you take away the wolves in yellowstone now they've reintroduced these wolves all kinds of plant life has returned the herbivore, you know all kinds of balance has happened because of that you unbalance things it's like our own health one thing gets out of whack you know then then something else occurs so so that's that's uh that opportunity to there's always there's many opportunities barberry removal of plants on your property uh getting back to the lawn and i think that there is a uh a real need to evaluate how much lawn space we have it's also a really wonderful opportunity to create a diverse colorful meadow space that is going to really be beneficial and something that's easy to maintain after it's after you get it going it's very easy to maintain and it's it's fun as hell to watch all the all the insects and birds that that appreciate what you've done it, it just feels good to do that for sure
0: what defines i know you have some pictures what defines a meadow versus i know a lawn is grass what would make something a meadow so meadows
1: meadows can be in wet areas they can be in dry areas they typically are comprised of grasses and flowering perennials some annuals but a lot of perennials Um, I can show you a, a photograph here. I brought one up. I can switch the screen here. <laughs> Yay. So this is this is a first-year meadow, uh, just sure. this year, Newtown. This is mostly annuals. We did that for, for purpose. The purpose uh, we did that is we wanted to give the client something to look at while the perennials are developing. So it's going to take a full two years, maybe three years, up to five years to have all of the perennials really take root and really get to size where they can flower. So we want to have a diversity of plant life in there. Uh, Certain plants are going to be a little more aggressive. Certain plants uh, will not thrive. So the seed population, when we do a seeding of a meadow, this is a seeded meadow, uh, when we do a seeded meadow, you have a, maybe you start with 40 different species of plants. And the idea is to keep that diversity, but certain plants are going to be more competitive. So we want to, the first year, to keep it mowed down until we can have the diversity created that we choose.
0: Uh, so so-, so you know, what were the steps? So how many years, in this is the first year, how did you get all that grass? Oops. How did you oh, so- get... Yeah. We're back. How did you get, like, what was there
1: before? So getting back to the lawn that this was a client they had been a client for years. Uh, yeah. We've done gardening for them and, and tree work and whatnot. They had a big back lawn area over their septic fields mm-hmm. and a sunny location. And the homeowner asked me whether or not it would be a good location for a meadow. I said, absolutely. So in this case, in this case, their lawn was very thick. It was a good stand of lawn. It was very thick, not a lot of weeds in it. So mm-hmm. we were able to take our we have a sod cutter and we were able to cut the cut all the grass out just down to the down to the soil level. Okay. We planted a we planted an orchard in that in that meadow and then we seeded it. So it's a fairly easy process. We we so, seeded so it. So so that
0: all that grew in one year? Like in one it's, summer,
1: we planted that in April. Wow. Yeah, yeah. So it's, that's it's,
0: amazing. And all the flowers you planted the flowers, so then you planted perennials. So the next year, and the next year, they'll just come up.
1: They'll come up. <laughs> yep. So it, it literally needs one year of mowing. I mean, one time. Sorry, one time a year mowing. Yeah. And usually in February or March after the nesting ground birds of Fled and they've done their thing. You don't want to disturb the the, the birds who are enjoying that space. Uh, and of course, while it's while it's green and growing, we don't want to mow it uh, typically. Uh, Long term, right. short term, we do that for establishment purposes. So it's uh, I think that's probably one of the areas that's low hanging fruit for a lot of people. I think that re- lawn removal. And meadow installation, it's just, it makes everybody happy. I, I don't know p- many people that pass a beautiful meadow that's in flower and say, well, that's just, you know, we can do better. Need a lawn
0: there. need a lawn. Wait, let's uh, put a, take it out put a lawn in. Let's yeah, mow that thing every week. So so that, so so the one time mowing in February, and March, But like, can we see the picture again? Can you go yeah, back? I can, I think I can do that. So then as opposed to having to mow your lawn every week or however often. Um, you would just leave it. There's nothing to do. All summer?
1: All summer. To get it you established. You don't have to water
0: it. You don't have to do anything,
1: right? To get it established, all all, all gardens, all grasses, all plants are going to require uh, a period of time where they need to get established. They'll need water. Mm-hmm. There's really not much weeding to be done, but we scout the area to make sure there's not a lot of aggressive weeds mm-hmm. coming If there are, we eradicate them. I'll share with you another meadow. This is a third-year meadow. The one we just looked at was a first-year meadow. This particular one is um, a third-year meadow. And it's quite large and it's in the fall. You can see that. Wow. From afar. this This was very unique because up to that tree line there were all manner of aggressive native a uh, non-native vines and thorns and everything you can think of it was it was quite a mess and we're looking now at two properties the adjoining neighbor this property and then there's actually one to the side of it there were three properties in a row we removed all the invasives on all three properties and just aesthetically it's it's it's, it feels better. You know, these invasive plants make you feel a little claustrophobic at least they do to me. That's my issue. But, but the, (laughs) the, uh, I'd rather be looking at something like this that feels freeing. It feels open. And I get, Hmm. I receive, I receive messages from this particular client and photos from many clients sending me pictures of their gardens and how happy they are, especially with these meadows Uh, of all the things that we do. This, we do a lot of traditional work. We do foundation planting work and, you know, of course, other stuff, but this, this type of, uh, planting is really what, what makes people happy. And, uh, and it just feels good to do. So I think of all the That's things amazing that we talk about. Yeah. And you so there's a find- little grass,
0: right? There's a little grass that has to be mowed right there. Yeah. We have place. mowed.
1: Yeah. Little mowed pathways through these yeah. spaces so we can have, you know, human interaction. Uh, and actually this property, there's a space, it goes back to a lake behind the house. It's actually more of a wetland and you couldn't see it before we cleared all the invasives out. It was just overgrown. So you couldn't see it.
0: And, and the neighbors cooperated. So they all worked together. That's, that's all, really cool.
1: all three, all three. incredible. Was, I manifested it was late winter. And I said, you know, I really want to do more of this work. And lo and behold, I got one, I got the second, and I got the third one like that. So it matters what you wow. tell yourself.
0: Wow. All right. And then you have that. So if you're listening on audio, I'm sorry that you can't see these beautiful meadows. I mean, I it's <laughs> like I want a me- I want I want a meadow now. I don't know where I put it, but I, I want <laughs> a so beautiful. Yeah. Well, we just have these rocks around the south. So I wonder <sighs> if we could put a meadow in instead. So we're right on the wetlands, but Anyway, all right, what's your third one cuz we only have a few more minutes. I want to see if you can pull it up. Let me see um, if I can
1: pull this one up.
0: Yeah. These are amazing. Wow. I I feel like a new a new pollinated person. <laughs> <laughs> no, I had no idea. I didn't I didn't know any of this, so I'm happy to be able to share this with people and you know who are ignorant like me. Wow
1: incredible There's one word i think we yet to share with you
0: okay
1: and i think the important thing is that not everybody has a huge amount of space there's some places where let's let's see here we go some places where you only have room a small amount of room to do to create some biodiversity and create some plants this is a Mm -hmm. property so once it populates, you can see it. Mm. This is a property. And now, not everything you're looking at are native plants, which I think is a good example, good, good thing to consider because not, we're not going to categorically remove every stick of plant that's in our on our properties in order to create biodiversity. If you have a beautiful Japanese flowering cherry in front of your house or a beech tree, or in the case of this, this is a Norway maple on the far back, that burgundy leaf, and then on the left, there's a spruce that's kind of a foxtail spruce right at the corner. Those are not native plants by any stretch, but to get rid of them for the sake of you know creating this, we don't have to do that. We don't have to remake it entirely. We can supplant our landscapes and add to it and to get the aesthetics and the diversity that we want. And a lot, of, there's nothing wrong with some of our ornamental plants. I call them ornamental versus native plants. There's nothing wrong with them if they're not escaping us uh, there's, there's room for a beautiful hydrangea. The hydrangea on the left, that white one happens to be a native. That's an Annabelle hydrangea. Well, it's an arborescence, hydrangea arborescence. That is a native, but there's lots of hydrangeas. The blue ones that you see in Nantucket, those are not native to this area, but they're not mm-hmm. considered aggressive or invas- invasive. So we sometimes use them and people just have to have them. So uh, we try to, we, we aim to please where we can. But this is an example of a property where front of the house it overlooks it's it's at the top of quite a high hill and we used a lot of natives they wanted some privacy a little bit because people can look up to the house but it's a beautiful little entryway mixed with all kinds of like like i said once again mostly native plants so it's all about layers it's about textures it's about creating more diversity and having different layers of plants Mm. oftentimes our, our landscapes as you drive around are kind of single plane, you have a row, a row of rhododendron, you have a row of azaleas, you have maybe pachysandra, as you mentioned. So, <laughs> so having having that diversity is, it, it's just pleasing to the eye. Wow. And,
0: well, thank you so much, Dan. This has been so interesting. I think we're, I think we're about out of time, but um, thank you so much for imparting us with your knowledge and your passion. And I'm assuming your purpose because it's, it's very, very, it's very cool. So what would you leave people in closing if they want to get in touch with you? We can put it in the notes, but what would you say would be someone's best stuff? I mean, I have your number. I don't know if you want to give that out or your email or your, your website or sure. do you want people to contact you or no? <laughs>
1: Sure, absolutely, absolutely <laughs> in business. So we need, you know, we, we love doing what we do. We love reaching more people. We want to reach more people. Uh, luckily there are some good practitioners out there. Uh, we've been doing it for quite a while and I, I uh, we're definitely passionate about it. It's, it's, uh, be happy. You can call us uh, on our phone number, Holmes fine gardens. we uh, You can reach us that way. Uh, we service, uh, Connecticut, parts of Westchester, parts of New York. Uh, we've traveled further for consultation and for design purposes. We have no problem doing that. And we will come in, we can consult with you. You can do the work yourself. We can work in any way, form or fashion. We just really want to spread the word that it's important work and it's possible. And mm. I, I think there's a real Uh, push to do this Uh, people are feeling it I think it's everywhere you you listen to um, the news there's there's a need for this and so I think I think it's easier for people to get overwhelmed and in essence like a lot of things don't feel like they have the tools or the knowledge to do it but we'd be happy to take a phone call even for sure happy to come out and take a assess a property
0: so. all right well thank you it's been so interesting and it's so it's www.holmesfinegardens.com h-o-l-m-e-s finegardens.com this is dan holmes horticulturist and owner and landscape designer of holmes fine gardens thank you so much um for I guess this is your first interview. So thank you for your courage and sharing your knowledge, really. So it's very, it's fascinating.
1: Thank you, and you so we're much. helping the
0: planet. We're helping the planet, right?
1: Trying to do what we can do, for sure. Yeah. Well, thank you for having me. I appreciate it very much.
0: You're welcome.